I'm so glad to be here and to be with you. I'm, I'm so proud of the story, Houston. I cannot tell you uh, how significant this is in uh, our church ministry. And I say we, this is a we. And uh, I, I want to, in fact, that's, that's the main reason I'm over here today is to, to um, emphasize uh, the we-ness. We say that our um, mission statement at St. Luke's is that we're one family in Jesus putting our faith to work in love. And that one family includes uh, our, our main traditional worship, includes our encounter worshiping community, includes our Gethsemane campus, and it includes the story Houston. And all of that is St. Luke's, all of that is a we. So we try and use the, the uh, first person whenever possible, hope that you do the same thing. Uh, that when we come here together, we all are trying to reach our city. We have different target audiences. Um, the story Houston uh, exists to inspire non-religious Houstonians to play their part in the unfolding story of God's love in Jesus Christ. And that's, we're trying to reach a, a particular group of folks, and I hope you'll help us. I know you are, and I can see it around us, and it's an exciting uh, thing to be here and to be with you. Uh, today, we are continuing a series, or actually concluding a series on the Ten Commandments here. And uh, so if you are one who have only been here for this particular Sunday, understand this is in the, in the context of a much uh, larger sermon series on the Ten Commandments. I'm so grateful that Eric gave me adultery. That's what I looked forward to coming and talking to you about. Uh, let me say a couple of things as, uh, as we get started. Uh, the first is, if you're single here today, I hope you'll still pay attention um, that there is much in the, the meat of today's uh, message that I think speaks to everyone, whether you're married or not. Second, if there are children with us, I will do the very best I can to be... Um, uh, general, so uh, as not too explicit, but friends, I can't cover it all up. I mean, uh, we we are are gonna we we are talking about physical intimacy here today, and so if you need to take your kids and go to the park, uh, it's a beautiful day. I would understand that. Um, let me uh, let me say this: uh, this is also I recognize for many people um, a, a topic that really cuts to the core, and, um, and that it can be painful and difficult to experience this conversation. And I just uh, pray that that will be a time of healing for you. In no way is this intended to be judgmental. Um, it's really intended for us to open ourselves to God's word and see what God can do to heal and to, and to protect those two things, to heal and to protect. The great Charles Allen, the pastor at First Methodist Church of Houston, uh, said that he believes that the violation of, of this commandment has caused more pain than the violation of any other commandment. And I suspect that's true. He, he says even more than murder, I suspect that's true. And so uh, today, as uh, we're going to, to do three things. I'm going to talk, I'm going to teach a little bit about what the commandment, the seventh commandment means and what it meant for Jesus, how Jesus interpreted it. Second, I'm going to talk about why it's important. And then third, I'm going to talk about what do we do, how do we deal with that. So let's pray together. Gracious God, uh, open us up. Open our eyes that we might see and our ears that we might hear. Open our hearts, God, that we might feel. And then, oh Lord, open our hands that we might serve. Amen. 
So first, what does this uh, commandment mean? Well, I want to talk about the Ten Commandments generally one more time as a review for you. Um, understand that the Ten Commandments, the law in general, was intended to distinguish the people of Israel from the world. Okay, I'm going to say that again. To distinguish, to make them different than the world around them. So sometimes what we've done is we've tried to make the Ten Commandments a, a universal moral code, right? So people say, well, let's put them in our, our courthouses because they really are a universal moral code. Well, for the people of Israel, at least, um, they were precisely the opposite. They were intended to be a very specific moral code for a very specific people to say, we are God's people. We are not just any people. We are God's people, chosen and called with specific purpose, and because of that, we will behave in a specific way. So when we understand the Ten Commandments, now second to th thing to understand is that, uh, that for the children of Israel, uh, well, uh, let me read you what Elliot Dorff said. Elliot Dorff is a, a scholar, a Jewish scholar, teaches at the University of Judaism in uh, California also is a rabbi. Jews understand the Ten Commandments as part of a much larger structure of 613 commandments in the Torah. Although the Torah singles out these commandments as the ten words, sometimes called the Decalogue, and depicts their announcement amid thunder, lightning, and earthquake on Mount Sinai, these commandments have no greater authority in the Jewish law than do any of the other 603. Now, that's, that's significant. See, we don't understand that the Christian faith has not interpreted it that way. In fact, if you really look back at the, at the uh, scripture at the time of, of uh, Moses, adultery had a very specific meaning, and it was focused on, and the punishment was death. Uh, adultery was... For a married man, adultery was not a crime against his wife, but against another man. So uh, that's kind of hard to get our mind around in today's society. What that says is that the women really had no rights. So in other words, if, if a married man was intimate with a single woman, that was fornication, was not punishable by death. But if that other woman was married, he had violated the, the other person's the other couple's uh, uh, marriage vows. A, a woman, on the other hand, was only liable to her husband, and so if she was intimate with another man uh, uh, outside who was single, it was her husband who held her accountable. It's a very strange, very narrow. Now, what's happened is, over the centuries, um, in fact, most, most Christian theologians apply this to all issues of sexual morality. Now, here, here's why I think that's important for us to understand, why I went into all that technical discussion. Because as we seek to apply Scripture, we aim it at our particular culture. And over time, the Holy Spirit works within us to help us understand how it applies specifically to our time. We don't have plural marriages anymore, right? I mean, that just isn't the case. And so uh, a commandment like about adultery it means meant one thing at that time, but we believe it means something much broader today. 
So I, I use that as an, as an illustration and just to kind of give us an opening picture of what the commandment actually um, meant. Now, what did Jesus mean? So Jesus then comes along in the Sermon on the Mount. And I, I just want to lift it up in Matthew that it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Where, where did the Ten Commandments come from? They came from the mountain, Mount Sinai. So as Jesus begins to reinterpret, re-understand the law, and, and frankly raise it to a higher ethic, he, he is, he is um, claiming that this scripture now has to be expanded. It has to be, it has to be um, uh, lifted up. What Jesus does is say it's not just about the mechanics here. It's not just about the mechanics of intimacy. It's not, it's not just about who and, and specifically what you do. This is a, a matter of the whole self. This is a matter of the heart, of, of the, the mind and the body and the heart. He says, if, you, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, that's hyperbole. We, I, I, you'd have to be some kind of fundamentalist to believe that you actually cut your hand off, right? Or gouged your eye out. But, but what he's saying is that it is the whole self. It is the heart it is the mind, it is the whole spirit that is to be in relationship with somebody else in a, in a relationship of commitment. I'm going to talk about that more in just a minute. So, so when somebody comes uh, to see me and asks me this question, I found out that my husband has been uh, deeply involved in pornography. Is that adultery? Or someone comes to me and says, uh, I've discovered that my wife has a, an emotional affair with someone online. Is that adultery? Well, you're, you're asking a question about mechanics when what you need to be asking a question about is, is of the heart. Of the mind, of the heart, and the soul. That, it is, that the level, what Jesus does is raise it to this whole new level. And then says, in, in me... We say Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. In me, we address the root cause that leads to that, which is a brokenness of the spirit. We call it sin. So he's saying what we want to do is heal the sin, and that will manifest itself in different sin, uh, in a healing of sins. Okay, so that's what, it, that's what it meant for Jesus. I want to talk about why it's important. Now, let's, let's be honest. Um, Jesus doesn't talk a lot about this. He talks a whole lot more about money. He talks a whole lot more about power. He talks a whole lot more about self-righteousness. In fact, uh, this and maybe one or two other places does Jesus address this issue. And I will confess that I do believe sometimes we in the church make this sort of the cardinal sin, right? This is like we make an idol out of it. And um, this is the one thing that we just can't tolerate, right? Uh, greed, okay. Adultery, not so okay. Well, I, I think that we missed the point. That does make an idol out of this. But don't, don't let that mean that it's not important. Because I think what the scripture says from the beginning to the end is that it's really, really important. The Old Testament uh, uses the image, uh, there's really two reasons it's important. The first is that, that it is a representation of the relationship between us and God. The Old Testament uses the image of, of a man and a wife 
as the image of, of the relationship between uh, God and his people. The prophet Hosea is depicted as the, the faithful one and the nation of Israel as the harlot wife. The Song of Solomon, it's always funny, it's a, if you haven't read the Song of Solomon, it is, a, um, it is a love poem, a racy, juicy love poem. I love it at wedding rehearsals when the, the, uh, the lay reader is supposed to read the scripture and I like to print out the juiciest part of it and give that to them to read. And just, it's always at the rehearsal, we don't actually do it at the wedding. But at the rehearsal, you watch them stumble around uh, when we get to those uh, fun parts. Uh, it is, so the question always comes up among the scholars, is this a poem about a man and a woman or is this a poem about God and God's people, God and Israel? And the answer is yes. It's about both of them. Because that's the picture that the scripture gives us of what the relationship between us and God is supposed to be like. And then when you get to the New Testament, it, uh, uh, Paul redefines marriage and says it is to be the relationship, it is to look like and exemplify the relationship between Christ and the church. So we are to love one another the way Christ loves the church. We are to, uh, to accept one another the way Christ accepts us just as we are. We are to sacrifice for one another the way Christ sacrifices for us. We are to forgive one another the way Christ forgives us. We are to bring out the very best in one another the way Christ brings out the very best in us. So if, if you put that in your head, that, that marriage, Christian marriage, is to be a representation of the love that, that Christ has for us, the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, what that says is marriage is not for you. Your marriage is for the world. It's to show the world what, what love really looks like, what faithful how faithful God is. Man, that's important. That's important stuff. So, so what that says is the, that marriage is a covenant. Here, here's the difference between a contract and a covenant. A contract is a par, uh, an agreement, a promise made between two parties. It's a conditional promise so that if if you'll do the following things, if you'll give me $500, I'll give you my car. But if you don't give me $500, I don't have to give you my car. It's conditional. A covenant is an unconditional uh, promise that binds two parties together in a relationship. That's different. It's similar to a contract. It's a two-way promise, but the difference is it's unconditional it can be dissolved, we call that divorce, but it is an unconditional promise. In other words, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, I'm still bound by mine until we dissolve the covenant. It's never automatically dissolved. And second, the difference between a covenant and a contract is that a covenant, the essence of the covenant is a relationship. It's not the mechanics, it's not the stipulations, it's the, it's the relationship. 
So God makes covenant with Israel, says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And here are the 613 laws that go about describing it. And the children of Israel begin to think it's all about those laws and it's not about the relationship. Jesus comes to say it's about the relationship. And we're going to describe a relationship in marriage that looks like this incredible relationship of, between God and his people. That's important. You know, the second reason it's important is this. That, that God designed physical intimacy uh, uh, to open up a portal between two people. And that, that a portal accesses the very core of who we are. It, it, is a, it is an opening to our most vulnerable places of the heart, of the soul, of the spirit. That's how it's designed. Here's, here's the words that the scripture uses, and they shall become one flesh. Right? That's the, that's the kind of joining that's that's, that is um, intended. And, and one of the reasons that, uh, that we talk to young people about waiting until they're married to be intimate is that what we realize is that there's an incredibly natural sense in which when we give ourselves to one another, um, an, an incredible fusion develops. And if that fusion that's so strong... Um, if, if it isn't in a relationship of lifelong commitment, then, it, then one day it's going to have to break. And man, that's going to hurt. That's not how it's designed to be. This is, it's a design for us to, to share with someone else something that belongs only to the two of us. And the fusion that happens there is powerful. And when we cheapen it and pervert it, then what happens is uh, that portal begins to close. And, and, and we're unable to create that kind of connection that is the kind of connection we're supposed to have with one another, uh, a, a committed partner, and with God. So uh, that, that picture, understand it this way. The commandments were given to us uh, out of love, as a protection. Here's what I know more than anything else as a pastor. Is that outside of those commandments, outside of, uh, if you can imagine the boundaries that God has set for us, outside of that, you know what's there? A lot of pain. That's what's out there. God says to the man and the woman, don't eat that the fruit of that tree, they eat of the fruit of the tree. Do you remember what the consequences were? The consequences were for the woman, pain in childbearing. For the man, uh, that the, the work of the fields would produce only thorns and thistles for him. Pain at work. Right? So the, the picture is that he, here I give you these as a, uh, as a protection, a, a, a way uh, you know, I mean, the truth of it is we get in our minds that, there, that any restriction is there to hurt us. The truth is the restrictions are given there, given us to protect us. We, we don't eat cake for breakfast for a reason. 
right? It, it, it's not because uh, somebody wants to be mean. It's we don't eat cake for breakfast because it's not good for us. And I would say the same is true of the commandments. So they are very important. Now I want to get really to the, to the nitty-gritty of this, and that is so um, if, if this is what they mean and this is why they're so important, important what should we do? And I just want to share um, some practical thoughts, I think. Uh, a number of years ago, I was required as a clergy person to go to a seminar on clergy misconduct. And when you go to, it's, uh, it's about, you know, I mean, some parts of it just make me laugh because, you know, um, they show somebody coming up to uh, his uh, administrative assistant and saying, wow, you look really nice. Why don't you unbutton one of those buttons? And you're like, seriously, nobody does that. I mean, everybody knows that, that doesn't, that's not the right thing to do. But then they had this video that just was uh, so powerful. It was a video of a, of a pastor who had um, been involved in an extramarital relationship and turned in his credentials, his ministerial orders. And he was explaining to it. He, he said, I, I want to use this opportunity to try and teach people something. And he said, uh, he told his story. He said, you know, I was at work, and this, um, this a young woman came in, and uh, she was a member of the church, and she was fun, and she laughed a lot, and, and as soon as she, uh, she was attractive, and as soon as I saw her, my heart beat a little bit faster, and I could feel my pulse race a little bit, and I found myself going out into the hall whenever she was around just to accidentally run into her. And he said, I, that was harmless. I knew it wasn't any big deal. That was harmless. And he said, and, and uh, then I, I decided to ask her to be on a committee because if I could be on it, if she was on a committee, uh, it would be fun. That would make that committee would be fun and we'd be together and it, it would just be nice. And there, wasn't, there was no harm in that. I mean, we were always with other people. And, and he said, and then we, we, she became the chairman of the committee and, and we would go to lunch ahead of time in order that we might have uh, a conversation about what was going to be in the meeting. And, and that led to a, a place where we began to talk about our personal lives and our marriages. And, you know, I was her pastor, and so she thought she could share with me, and I made the mistake of, of sharing with her. And, and then we uh, began to uh, just go out for a glass of wine before evening meetings. And he went on to say, this was the image he used. He said, by the time we were physically intimate, the train was moving so fast, I didn't know how to stop it. You got to stop the train way back here. The truth is, every one of us, every single one of us are going to feel that flutter in the heart. That's going to happen. You can't pretend that that would never happen to you, because it will. But when that happens... Be self-aware enough to recognize. See, that's why Jesus says, if you've lusted in your heart, you, have, you are already liable for the judgment, right? You are on your way. Once you begin to have that feeling, it's not so much that you need to, to um, judge yourself for the feeling as much as you've got to stop there. Stop the train. Get off of it. Second thing is this, you've got to heal the breach. What I want to tell you is that there are um, 
that sometimes what we think is, if someone is involved in an extramarital relationship, then that means that the marriage is over. And I'm going to tell you that's not true. You remember I talked about a covenant as an unconditional relationship? Until it's dissolved, it, it, it is, remains in force. And so when people will come into my office and say, our marriage is over, um, she had an affair or he had an affair, I, will, I would say your marriage is not over. You can choose to dissolve it. That's going to be your choice, but it's not over. It remains in force. It may have been broken, but it remains in force. You are still married. And here's what I'm going to tell you, that I, I, I started to say most of the time, I'm not sure I could say most, I couldn't document that, but much of the time, relationships on the other side end up stronger and healthier and happier because the issues are faced, healing takes place, it takes a long time, it takes intentional effort. Because when you get to the other side, you think, we survived that. We made it through that. We came out on the other side, and God saw us through that. God can do anything because he got us through that. You see, that uh, we have to get to that point where we realize that that moment of incredible pain is not the time to make that decision. That time is later. And that with work, transformation can happen. It also may be that there are people here who've been involved in extramarital relationships that um, your spouse never found out. Your spouse doesn't know now. And here's what I would tell you the same thing. Uh, there's lots of guilt and shame that goes with that. But you can get to the other side of that. God can, with repentance, there is forgiveness. And you can start over again in your life and move forward. So, um, you know, I, I would tell you, don't give up. Heal the breach. Because God has brought you together for purpose. And that purpose is to demonstrate the unconditional love of God. Okay, one more thing. You know, I uh, was listening to a story the other day by a woman named Jane Green. And she's an author. She has written 18 books, 17 of which are New York Times bestsellers. She's a novelist. And she was telling this story about when she was 40 years old. She was married, had three kids, uh, dogs and cats and chickens living in her nice suburban house. And she said, I was invited to come to the city one day, New York City. She lives out in um, New York. And she said, I went into the city, and uh, as I, I got off of the subway and I was walking down the sidewalk, and I realized that not one single man even noticed me. And she said, it was a horrible feeling. She said, I, I ended up going into this conference I was going to, and I sat at the bar in the hotel. The conference was in a hotel, and I sat at the bar outside waiting on my turn to go in. And 
uh, while I was sitting there, this young, handsome man in his late 20s came up and sat down beside me. And uh, we began to talk. He was an author, too, and he was going to present at the same conference. And we began to laugh together and talk together about so many things. And then he, uh, we were called into the conference. And when he was giving his presentation, he said, out there in the lobby, I had a conversation with the most lovely, beautiful woman. And she said, my heart raced. He went on back to Los Angeles, and she stayed in New York, but they began to exchange emails. And they exchanged emails um, back and forth, uh, kind of, you know, light, flirtatious emails, nothing deep or uh, particularly intimate. And then one day she was invited to speak at a conference in Los Angeles. And she said, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to meet him. So she scheduled a lunch with him. And uh, she told her husband, she said, I'm, I'm going to go to Los Angeles, and uh, on September 4th, I have this presentation to make. It's really important for my career. And he said, September 4th? She said, yes. And he said, that's my birthday. And he, she said, not only was I planning this, but I was planning it on his birthday. She said, it made me just sick to my stomach. But then he said, I'll go with you. She thought, oh, no. So the lunch was already planned, and she didn't know what to do to cancel it. And so off they went, and she said, the three of us met for lunch together. She said, and you know what happened? He and my husband hit it off perfectly. They became best buds. Their heads were together and chatting and talking. And he said, she said, we, we decided to go on a walk together. And uh, we were walking along. She said, I bought these beautiful, sexy sandals for this uh, meeting, this brunch we were going to have. And she said, I, I, there I was walking along 15 paces behind my husband and this man who were just head to head talking all the time. And she said, my feet were killing me. Sweat was pouring off of me. She said, I thought to myself, she's British, this bloody well serves you right. <laughs> she said, in, in that moment, I realized something. She said, I always think that the grass is greener. But I've come to understand that the grass is greener where you water it. The grass is not greener on the other side. The grass is greener where you water it. She said, I began to think about my husband and his big comforting hands and his salty gray beard and the way he brought stability to my life. And I began to thank God for him. I began to thank God for not what he wasn't, but what he was. It's Thanksgiving week. And I want to encourage you to water the lawn. Uh, whatever relationships you're involved in, you can sit around and think, gosh, I wish I had a different one. But friends, that's not going to get you to a place of wonderful happiness. I'm going to tell you that. It's going to get you to a place of great pain. Even if you, even if you never cross a boundary, right? It, it only brings pain. I want to encourage you to thank God for what you have and to water the lawn. So let's close in prayer.